Good morning, City Church. It's good to see you guys. I want to welcome those of you watching over in the video cafe and those watching online. Uh, if you've been around with us this year, you know that we're focusing uh, our attention on following Jesus. And uh, we, we've seen that Jesus invited all kinds of people with all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of baggage to follow him. And uh, we've learned that a key aspect of following Jesus is holding on to his teachings. And we've seen that uh, part of following Jesus is learning his teachings and then living his teachings. And for the next several weeks, we're going to look at what Jesus taught about how to have great relationships. Now, uh, in January, I invited you to uh, give me prayer request cards with your prayer requests written out, and I've been praying through those. Literally, thousands of them came in. And as I've been praying through those cards over and over again, you are asking me to pray for various relationships that are struggling. And it's not always, you know, the marriage relationship. Sometimes you're single and you're dating, or sometimes it's you're, you're having struggles with kids or with parents or with uh, your boss, people at work. It's all kinds of relationships. And so we're going to be looking at what Jesus said about great relationships in this series. And I want you to know that City Church is a safe community where you can get honest about your struggles in your relationships. Now, several, several years ago, um, a couple stopped by the church offices. It was one of those uh, weeks when I wasn't preaching and so I had a little bit of extra time and energy, and I was actually able to meet with this couple and uh, talk to them a little bit, and they told me their story. They had been going to City Church for several years. Uh, they are, they'd been married for several years, and it was a second marriage for both, and so it blended his kids with her kids, you know, his ex and her ex, and they just told me that they were struggling in their family and in their marriage. In fact, things had become pretty toxic they told me that that morning they were driving in their car with uh, divorce documents in their hands and signed, ready to go turn it into their attorney's office. But they said they drove by the church property and they felt prompted to give, give it one more try, you know, one more go. And as I unpacked what, what had been going on in their relationship, it was so clear that they really didn't want to end their marriage and, their, and you know, separate their family. They really wanted to make it, but things had become so dysfunctional and so toxic, they didn't know what else to do but give up. And honestly, I was grateful that they felt like they could come and tell their pastor that. I mean, it's, that's sort of the first step to healing is you got to be able to be honest about the health of your relationships. And so I want to ask you this morning, honestly, how are your relationships going? Your marriage, your family, coworkers, neighbors, extended family? Would you say that your relationships are okay? Are they not great? Do you even think they could be great? And what do you think it would take to make your relationships great? Now, as we kick off this series, I do want to dispel a myth about great relationships. And it's what I, what I call the right person myth. Like the problem with my relationships is I don't have the right person. If I just had the right boyfriend or girlfriend, then my relationship would be great. I've got the wrong. If I just had the right spouse, my relationship would, would be great. I've got the wrong spouse, obviously, right now. So, Lord, give me the right spouse. You know what I'm saying. It's the right boss. If I just had the right job with the right boss, then my relationships would, would be great. If you're a student, if I just had the right teacher, I got a sorry teacher. I, Lord, I need the right teacher. And it's the right person myth about great relationships. And 
Here's the thing I want us to get about the right person myth is uh, great relationships aren't about finding the right person because nobody's perfect. Your boyfriend is not perfect and is not going to be perfect. Your spouse is not perfect. Your boss is not perfect. And guess what? You're not perfect either. <laughs> so great relationships are not about the perfect people in the perfect uh, relationships. It's not about getting the right people because nobody's perfect. Instead, great relationships are about imperfect people in imperfect relationships who develop certain characteristics that allow them to create great relationships. And so for the next three weeks, that's what we're going to focus on, how to develop these characteristics that help us to make all of our relationships great. And I want us to start by looking at some conversations that Jesus has with his disciples. And I'm smiling because I think it's so funny. He spends three years with these guys. He's getting ready to hand his movement off to them, and they're still struggling in their relationship. And so can I just say it makes me feel good about myself? Okay, so... They spent three years with Jesus and they were still struggling in their relationships. I think that means it's okay if we're struggling in our relationships. But part of what happens in, in the journey we're gonna take today is Jesus is gonna point, point out this, this key hindrance to great relationships and cast vision for how to change it. So let me set up the scene. Uh, it, Jesus is nearing the end of his three-year public ministry he is preparing to go back to Jerusalem, and he knows he's going to be crucified there. And so he's trying to get his core disciples, these 12 men, he's trying to get them ready so he can pass on his movement to them. But along the way, they're heading toward uh, Jerusalem, and they, they have an argument. They're, they like have a flat-out argument in front of Jesus, the boss. Can you believe it? And so this is where we'll uh, join them. This is Mark chapter 9, verse 33. So they came to Capernaum when he was in the house, talking about Jesus. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? These are the 12, man. I mean, they weren't arguing about who had the greatest relationships. They were arguing about who was the greatest. And this is all about roles and power. You know what I'm saying? Roles and power in our lives. Now, let's just be honest. All of us uh, in our various relationships have certain roles and certain power and authority that goes with those roles. So, uh, for instance, if you're a parent, you have a role and authority as, as a parent. If you're a spouse, you have a role and certain authority as a spouse. If you're a boss or a manager, you have a role with certain authority. If you're a teacher... Uh, you have roles with certain authority. If you're a coach or a captain of a team, you have roles and certain authority. Uh, you, you can have authority as a military leader, as a political leader, uh, as a uh, office, police officer or a judge within our community. You can have authority as a board member and if you're a student, maybe as a student council uh, leader. There's nothing wrong with having roles that have authority that go with them. Uh, there are many kinds of roles like that and Jesus had a role like that. The issue is how do you use your role and your authority? How you use it is what determines if you make relationships better or worse. And so notice how Jesus responds uh, to his disciples arguing about who is the greatest. This is verse 35. Sitting down, 
Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, not the last, the very last and the servant of all. Now here Jesus picks the least person, the lowest person in the family structure of his day. If your family was just marginally had wealth, you would have a servant in the house and that person would be the least person in the house. You know, it'd be mom and dad, you know, maybe teens, then kids, and then the servants. So Jesus picks the least person and says, in, the, in their family structure, and says, if you want to be great, become a servant of all. Now, you have to understand how shocking this would have come across to Jesus' disciples. Because in Jesus' day, being a servant was not viewed as a very great aspiration. Now, in our day, we view it as a positive attribute, don't we? I mean, if we say that somebody's a great servant, you know, that Bill's he's got such a servant's heart, that Lisa is such a servant, am I saying a positive thing or a negative thing? I'm saying a positive thing. That's because of Jesus. But in Jesus' day, it wasn't the case. If you were called a servant, that was a slam. That means you were the lowest of the low. You had the most demeaning jobs within the family structure. And here, Jesus, it's like you've seen the power pyramid, you know, or the top down. Jesus, he turns it upside down. And he casts vision for people in their relationships to become servants in those relationships. Servants are fo have a focus. They're focused on the needs of others. The, they're, they're seeking to benefit others. They're seeking to serve others. They're not about what they can get. They're about what they can give. They're not takers, they're givers. And so Jesus, in calling his disciples to be servants, is casting vision for what uh, the kind of characteristic that makes relationships great. Follow with me. If you're in a relationship where you're seeking to get and you're seeking to benefit yourself, and you're in a relationship with someone else who's doing the same, will that relationship do very well? No, it will not. But imagine if you're in relationships where you're using your power, your authority, your roles to give and to serve others and to benefit others, and they're doing the same in those same relationships. Guess what? Everybody wins. So Jesus is casting vision for us to live our lives in that way. Well, Jesus' disciples didn't get it. Uh, they, were, they were focused on, on other things we're going to see in a moment. So Jesus, just a couple of days later, got another opportunity uh, to teach them something about how to build great relationships. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, two of the 12 disciples, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And that's sort of a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> Have you ever had a kid do that, parents? Okay, dad, 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 dad. I want you to do whatever I ask. Will you say yes? <laughs> no. <laughs> what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other at your left in your glory. And he, they're talking about when he comes into his kingdom. So they're picturing the kingdom now. Verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. In other words, they got mad. They probably got mad because they didn't think about asking for that uh, position first, right? Now, what's going on here? What, what is apparently what was unspoken for three years that they traveled together with Jesus is that they had served as co-equals. Everybody was the same. They were all following Jesus and they all served together. But now they're getting ready for Jesus to come into the kingdom 
And now they're starting to jockey for the best positions. And so I need to explain the right and the left-hand thing. So in Jesus' day, if you were a king, you sat on, you know, you had a throne, and so you were in the most important seat in the kingdom. The second most important seat was on the right. Whoever was there was the second highest in power and authority, and then the third highest position, you sat on the left. And so James and John are saying, Jesus, you're the king, we got it. We wanna be on the right and the left. <laughs> it's about power by proximity. You know what I'm saying? Now we have this in our culture, don't we? Like when you go to a local hospital, who gets the reserved parking spaces right by the building? Is it nurses or doctors? Doctors, power, proximity. No offense to my doctors out there, love you. My wife, Barbara, worked for years in law firms. You know, you know I noticed it there, too, because when I'd go visit her in the office spaces, you know what? I never saw attorneys working in little cubbies out in the big open space in the middle of the office. And I never noticed assistants working in corner offices. It's all about power and proximity. When you go to the Spurs game, what are the seats of power? Courtside, box seats. Those are the power seats, and everybody knows it. And, and come on, guys, we have this in our driving uh, routines. What's the most powerful seat in your car? Driver's seat, in control. What's the second most powerful seat? Shotgun. Where do the kids and the dogs and the lowly people sit? Back seat. Okay, you get what I'm talking about. And you get why there was friction between the disciples. So now they're asking for shotgun. And they didn't ask for shotgun. And so there was tension. So uh, first part of 42. So Jesus called them together. And I want to pause there for a second. So think about what has happened. This conflict and this argument now has created literal physical distance. You see? They've separated. I, they're probably at a house. And so they're separated. So they spread out in the house and in the courtyard. Have, they ever, have you ever noticed that relational distance often leads to physical distance? You can see there's probably a couple of them you know, huddled in a corner talking about those other jerk tin disciples and then there's a couple others in the courtyard and they're talking about the, they're separate. And so Jesus had to call them together. Is there any physical distance in any of your relationships? Has relational distance led to physical distance? You know where you avoid a person or you avoid going by the door of their room in your house, or you avoid going by the door their office, you like go around the long way because you don't want to go by their office? Come on, son. See, I know you. You have some people you are avoiding on social media because, because the relational distance has created physical distance. Okay, you see where I'm going with this. So anyway, Jesus has to call them together. Uh, verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers, now he's talking about a role, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. There's that servant stuff again. And so you notice what Jesus is doing here. He's pointing out the, the role, the ruler role that they're all arguing about. They all want to be rulers. Well, why does a person want to be a ruler? So you can lord it over other people. It's about getting a role and getting some power and telling people what to do. 
That's what being a ruler is all about. And you lord it over other people. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Has anyone ever lorded it over you? You know, you lord it over someone when you take your authority, your power, and you control people, and you make them do what you want them to do that benefits you but doesn't benefit them. Have you ever had someone that lorded it over you? How did that make you feel? Did it make your relationships great? I bet it didn't. Have you ever lorded it over anybody? With your role? With your authority? That's where Jesus is going here. Because when, when you lord it over people with your authority, you bring toxicity into those relationships. Now, I suspect, and I want to pause for a moment and say something. I suspect that the disciples were thinking, hey, Jesus, this whole everybody be a servant thing, it ain't going to work. Because if everybody's a servant, who's going to lead people? I mean, you're going to give us this movement. You said this was a movement. You started it, and you said you wanted us to lead it. Well, how can you lead it if you're a servant? Because if you're a servant, that means nobody's leading. Who's going to be in charge of this thing? You ever thought stuff? Now, please understand, Jesus is not arguing against leadership in organizations, businesses, families, communities, but he is casting vision for a different view of leadership. He's casting vision of servant leadership, where people take their roles and their authority and their power, and they use it to serve others and to benefit others and to give away, not to get. It's not about what you get. It's about giving away. So anyway, Jesus cast vision for his disciples to create a new view of leadership, servant leadership. Well, Jesus could tell that his disciples still didn't get it. And so on the night, I mean, now time's slipping away. It's the last night. He knows he's going to be arrested this night. And he's having his last meal with his disciples. And he decides to do something so that they'll get it. And so uh, we're going to look at John's account of this uh, scene. It's the Last Supper. And in this scene, John begins his account of what happened with a key motive that fuels servanthood. This is John 13, 1. <clears throat> it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Servanthood is fueled and driven by love. Why would I put other people first? Love. Why would I take my power and my authority and use it to benefit others instead of myself? Love. Why would I be a servant of all and take the last place? Love. Great relationships are not about perfect people and perfect relationships. Great relationships occur when imperfect people in imperfect relationships choose to love one another. Jesus continues. Uh, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. How much power does he have now? All power. The Father has put all things under his power, and he had come from God and was returning to God. So please notice, Jesus has a, a crystal sense of clarity about who he is. He is the Son of God. He's the one in the throne. 
He has all the power and all authority. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. Jesus is the greatest person in the room. Jesus is the greatest person in any room. And he knows it. But notice what he does with his great power and authority. Verse four. So, because he knows who he is, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, in Jesus' day, the most demeaning role within the household is washing people's feet. And we don't really practice that much today, but in Jesus' day, this, this, it, was almost, it was disgusting because, you know, the roads and the alleyways that people walked on were mostly dirt and people wore sandals. And so one of the practices is when you entered a person's home, the lowest person in the home, if it was a little kid, it was a little kid. If you had a servant, it was a servant. And they would wash your feet so you didn't track the dirt and dust into the house. But do you get the scene? So they're all in this room. They're all getting ready to eat. And nobody wants to flinch. Well, I'm not going to wash your feet. Well, I'm not going to wash your feet. So the greatest person in the room did it. Nobody else was humble enough. Nobody else had enough love. And so Jesus washed his own disciples' feet. He took his authority and served. He took his power and knelt before them. And then he cast vision for what his movement is all about. This is uh, verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, uh, because that is what I am. In other words, I know my role. I am the Lord. I have the greatest role on earth. I have all authority and all power. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And here's what Jesus is saying. You want to have great relationships? Well, great, peop great people kneel. Great people forge great relationships by kneeling. Great spouses kneel. Great parents kneel. Great bosses and managers kneel. Great political leaders, kneel. That's what Jesus' movement is all about. And when, when you kneel, you change the dynamic of your relationships. So according to Jesus, great relationships is not about the other person. It's not about getting the right people, finding the right people. Because guess what? Great relationships begins not with the other people. It begins with you. It begins when you and I choose to kneel in our relationships. And so I want to unpack this a little bit because this can be sort of theological and practical. Can I, can I get into everybody's business, including my own? So let me give you a couple examples of what kneeling looks like, what having this servant's heart looks like in a relationship. So I want to sp uh, first speak to my friends who are single. Uh, and and let, let's say that you're interested in dating. If you may be single and, and happy, great. Uh, but the principle I'm going to teach works for everybody. But if you're single and you're dating... It's not about finding the right person. It's, it's, I, th I think what this says is it's about you becoming the kind of person the person you're looking for is looking for. You see? 
It's about you becoming the right kind of person. It's about developing a servant's heart. It's about becoming a person who is a giver and not a taker. A person who uses whatever gifts, abilities, power you have to serve another person. And, and I do wanna just make sure uh, that we're clear. I'm not talking about being a doormat in your relationships, okay? Because that, that's, okay, was Jesus a doormat? Uh-uh. But was he a servant? Was he fueled by love? Yeah. So see, you can do both. You, you don't have to be a doormat. And so, so let me apply this principle now to who you're looking for. Because I do think it influences that. If you're single and you're, you're interested in dating, you're looking for some, look for a person who has a servant's heart. Look for the kind of person who is a, a giver, not a taker. Don't settle. Don't settle for someone who is self-absorbed, who's out for their own interests, who's a, who's a taker and you know it. And, don't, and, don't, and please don't make the mistake of thinking you can fix them. You can't. He can fix himself, she can fix herself, but you can't. Please don't settle. Now, let, let me talk to parents and step-parents out there. Because we do have authority, don't we? And we do have a role, and it's an important role. And so I want to speak to the parents and step-parents out there. The, the key element for us as parents and step-parents is that we take our authority and our role, and we make sure that we do not power up on our kids with it. We make sure that we don't lord it over our kids. Because here's what happens. If you lord your power over your kids, they will find ways to get out from under your authority. It's just the way people are wired. If they feel like you're using your authority to get what you want and not serve it, they, they will seek to get out from under your control. And so I'm gonna give you a new way to think about it. So I was thinking about my own relationship with my parents, and I think they did a pretty good job with me. And I remember when I, I turned 16 and I could start driving. And so my dad gave me a curfew. Now, my dad could have done the typical parent thing. He said, now let me tell you, son, I'm the parent here, you're the kid, and so this is the curfew, it's my house, my rules, uh, you know, I've got the insurance, you can't get insurance without me, so it's my car too. It's my, you see what I'm saying? He could have powered up on me and said, that's why you're gonna keep my curfew. That's not what my dad did. My dad treated me like a person, <laughs> and he talked to me. He wanted me to understand why he gave me a curfew. This, and I still remember it to this day, 30, what, 40 years later. My dad told me, he said, you know, son, I'm giving you this curfew because uh, most drunk drivers, they're out later at night, and I just don't want to expose you to that because I love you. And, and son, you know what I found with teenagers is the later the night gets, the riskier their decision-making is. I mean, it's just the way it is as a teenager. And of course, I didn't want to admit it then, but I knew he was right. I mean, when, you know, come on, man. The later it gets, the crazier you get when you're a teenager. It's just the way we're wired. And so dad said, because of that, I want, this is the curfew. And this is what I want you to see about what my dad did. He showed me how his curfew served me and made things better for me. And that's why I still have a good relationship with my mom and my dad. I'm gonna go have lunch with them today. You can do this. City Church, we can forge great relationships. And it's up to us. Imagine what would happen in our marriages if, if husbands knelt before their wives and wives knelt before their husbands. Imagine what would happen in our families if parents knelt before their children 
and children knelt before their parents. Imagine what would happen in our workplaces if bosses knelt before their employees and employees knelt before their bosses. Folks, we would have great relationships in our workplace. We would have great relationships in our marriages and in our families. Now, some of you might say, boy, pastor, you know, I wish I had heard this message 10 years ago or five years ago or 15 years ago before I screwed it up. I've been lording it over people a long time. I've heard a lot of people. What do I do? I, I want to promise you, doesn't matter how long it took you to get to where you'll kneel. If you will begin kneeling in your relationships, you may need to do so in a defining act of humility in some relationship, but if you do this, if you will begin to kneel, I promise you can, you can make even a broken relationship great. I'm going to show you what I mean by that. Now, uh, many of you know that for years our church has supported a nonprofit organization called Liberia Now in West Africa, a poorest, uh, second poorest nation in the world per capita. And anyway, we've been doing a work there for over 10 years. Uh, anyway, one of the things that we do in Liberia is we train pastors and their spouses to lead their churches because they've not had the opportunity for like seminary or, or theological training. So we do that. Well, so one pastor's conference, uh, we were teaching... Uh, these pastors and spouses, and I, I had a female pastor come with me, and so she took the ladies, and they were doing some sessions, and I had the men, I was doing some sessions, then we would get together in the afternoon and, and do leadership training together. Well, we found out after the first day that the, many of the women were just angry, angry and hurt and bitter because their husbands were physically abusive to them. And what I found out is that in some places in West Africa, their culture tolerates husbands being physically abusive toward their women because many of them were purchased with a dowry, and so they're viewed as property. And when I found out that this was going on, we, we chunked the second day's sessions. It was going to be all about leadership stuff, and we decided we were going to address this issue and talk about God's vision for marriage. And so we came the next morning and our female pastor took the, the wives and began to help them process their pain, their anger, their bitterness, which was certainly understandable. And then I had the men and I confronted them. I said, I don't care if your culture tolerates this kind of behavior. If you follow Jesus, you must stop it. Because this is what the scriptures, the Christian scriptures say the job of the husband is. Paul says it, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. Your job as a husband is to be a giver, to give your life away, to take your power, your authority, your strength, and to serve your wife and to protect her and to do what's best for her, not what's best for you. Jesus never hit the church. Jesus never abused the church. He gave for the church. And if you'll give your life for your wife, you'll change the whole dynamic of that relationship. And, you know, so I, I, so I, I, I spoke that. I confronted the, the men. I didn't know if they were going to listen to me or not. Anyway, so the, in, in the afternoon, the ladies came back over. Oh, man, it was so weird because the men were all sitting together on one side of the conference room. The ladies came and sat in the other, and the ladies were all, their eyes were looking straight forward. They were not looking over at their husbands. They weren't having none of it. And I thought, oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. And uh, 
Uh, and so, you know, the session hadn't started yet, and I thought, Lord, what, you know, what do we do now? I mean, you sort of outed everything. All of a sudden, one of the Liberian men stood up. He walked over to where his wife was seated, and she kept her eyes looking straight ahead. And he knelt down before her, and he began to weep. And he confessed his sins to her, and he begged her to forgive him. He created a defining moment in their relationship because he knelt. And then one by one, other husbands did the same thing and they repented of the way they were living. And I know this, because I've been back since. I wanted to know, did they practice what, what we were talking about? And I can't tell you how many, how many of the wives came to me when we came back and just hugged me and said, thank you for confronting our husband. They're different men now. Our relationships are great. So much so that they tell me that people in their neighborhood recognize what had happened. What, what happened, y'all? You're smiling now, and you, you seem like you even like each other now. And they tell them about Jesus and about his way. And they're able to teach him a new way. You can make your relationships great if you're willing to kneel. And so I'm asking you to think about, is there some relationship that you're in that's, that's rocky right now? Maybe where you know you've messed up. And you may need to literally kneel before that person, but maybe, maybe figuratively you need to kneel. I'm asking you to do that this week, to make things right. And other per people may not forget, I don't know. I don't know how, what they'll do, how they'll respond. You're not responsible for them, but you are responsible for you. And so I'm asking you to do the right thing as we all follow Jesus together. Let's pray. First of all, Lord, uh, it's just so grateful to know that you, you loved and led your disciples with all of their baggage and you love us with all of our baggage. And we do, we do stand in that and stand on that. And Lord Jesus, you taught us a different way to make relationships great. And so I ask that you would help all of us to be servants and develop servant hearts in all of our relationships. And then there are some of us who feel like we need to go and kneel before someone, whether literally or figuratively. I pray that you would give us clarity about that person, give us the courage and the faith to actually do it, Lord. And then prepare the hearts of the ones we need to humble ourselves before. Lord, we ask you just to soften their hearts and to hear our confession. And Lord, we're gonna, we're gonna serve others. We're gonna learn what that means and we ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.